You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. I'm Jim Del Rosso from Las Vegas, Nevada, dermatologist. And today we're bringing you another episode of Derms and Conditions. And I don't know why I'm in the mood for chocolate. It might be because I'm getting ready to uh, talk with Jocelyn Kirby, who's Associate Professor of Dermatology at Penn State Health, which is based in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And they do have some chocolate there. if I I remember correctly. So I'm I'm really excited today because I'm now talking to the second dermatologist that I know played rugby, Alan Mentor, who's from South Africa. He played professionally in South Africa, our our psoriasis guru. And Jocelyn Kirby, where did you play rugby? I played in college where I went to Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech, the Hokies, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And then you you went to University of Pennsylvania, did your dermatology residency. Mm Mm-hmm. And then went right to where you are now. You've been in uh, at this one position your entire career since 2008, I believe you told me one time. That's right. I've been lucky. So you've obviously been involved in dermatology. I remember before I knew you, Diane Tibetot, who I had done some work with on acne and knew very well, uh, was when I was actually coming to do a grand round, she says, well, you're going to get to meet some other people. Do you know Jocelyn Kirby? I said, no. So Jocelyn knows about so many things. I mean, she really uh, is a wealth of knowledge in dermatology, and it's turned out that way. But today we're going to focus on one of the areas that I know you have spent a lot of time on. Fortunately, uh, we need leaders in dermatology and diseases like hydratinitis suppurativa. So how did you become interested in hydratinitis suppurativa? It was something I spent some time doing in residency and actually really struggled as part of one of the early studies using a Tannercept uh, to treat HS. And I, I thought it was me, honestly. And so the interest in HS Uh, only came out later. And that experience in residency was sort of latent, you know, it bubbled up uh, later and was really the reason why I focused on research because I realized it wasn't just me that was struggling to try and assess what's happening, how many lesions, is it better, is it not? It's really all of us uh, struggle to do that with uh, some of the instruments that exist right now. So, you know, in hindsight, everything is oh so clear. But of course, when you're in the moment and looking forward, everything is, you know, sometimes a little more stressful and uh, full of anxiety. Um, But that experience was, I think, a little bit uh, poetic, at least in my mind. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is in our heads, but but in at the moment, I mean, hydratinitis suppurativa has always been a very frustrating disease. It's one of those those conditions for me. I go in the room and I'm like, I, I, I question myself and how much am I really going to be able to help this patient or am I going to be sending them to get extirpation of their entire axilla or groin? Or It was like we had limited choices and then this jump to this aggressive surgery. And obviously, things have changed. So bring us up, up to date. Uh, bring me up to date on on some of the background of what we think is actually going on with hydratinitis suppurativa, and then we'll get into some of the ways that we can manage it better. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing is that we're realizing the name hydratinitis, which you know really focuses this disease on inflammation around apocrine glands, is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, it's probably more inflammation around hair follicles and apocrine glands and other structures in the skin might play a secondary role. Um, but this is first and foremost an inflammation 
of the skin, not infection. So helping our patients really understand that uh, and that it seems to be focused more around hair follicles. Why it happens so much in folds of the body, we have a hard time explaining, but it's certainly not just sites of the body where there's apocrine glands. So I noticed that a, a lot of the patients that have it tend to be larger people, people that are overweight. Um, and occasionally you see people that are not. Is there a difference in what's going on between someone who's tall and thin and has has hydratinitis separativa and those many patients that we see that are tend to be overweight, have a lot of frictional aspects in addition to the disease itself? Yeah, Jim, you're making me think of two things. One is that we really haven't figured out yet sort of that chicken or egg phenomenon that is the association of HS with the higher rates of being overweight or obese. And certainly sometimes it could be you have HS, maybe it's more mild, but it's making it hard to walk and it's painful and it's hard to make the same food choices you might make when you're uncomfortable and maybe not sleeping well. And that the effects of HS, the symptoms of HS are really contributing uh, to changes in uh, lifestyle and maybe gaining weight. Um, whereas the converse uh, certainly also sometimes is true, where people are heavier, there are changes maybe in their microbiome, the degree of inflammation in their bodies that then uh, cause or bring on uh, the HS. I think the larger question we all have though, Jim, is what data do we have to say that if people lose weight, we can manage their HS? And we don't have that data. And so at least when I'm in clinic, I tend to hold back, at least in that first visit, from coming down too hard on the, I need you to lose weight, stop smoking, make dietary changes. Because that's just really easy to say and really hard to do when you're a patient and you have uncontrolled pain and drainage and, you know, all the activities of daily living are really hard. So that's a conversation I tend to have at follow-up visits after I'm helping them to feel better. Yeah. I mean, for myself, if I'm irritable or down or could imagine what these people feel like, I'm more likely going to be going to the stack of Oreos and <laughs> and, and the Haagen-Dazs and everything else that I, that I love that make, uh, certainly makes it harder to lose weight. So now we have these patients that we're seeing now modern times. Right? So what are some of the things that we've done previously in the past, like using antibiotics, maybe some of the topical therapies, a lot of people throw topical clindamycin into the axilla or the groin, where I've heard all you're doing is selecting out staphylococcal resistance, or it maybe not really accomplishing anything. Looking back at the things that we've had for years, is there anything there that we still find helpful and other things that maybe we should let go of? That is a really great question. And I think that we sometimes look into the past and we're just a little too harsh, um, you know, on the folks who were, had the best of intents and we're trying to do at least something. Um, I think what has changed is that the way that we do uh, some of the things that we did years ago is just a little more precise. And so I guess what I mean by that is, do I expect topical clindamycin to make a big difference in somebody with stage three disease? No, I'm not going to give it to every person or, you know, really what come down hard if somebody is not using it regularly, if they have, you know, stage two or stage three disease. I just don't have high expectations that topical clinda is going to make or break somebody's routine with that advanced inflammation. 
I think but that how it's, about doing harm? How about doing harm oh, and sure. by resistance and stuff? Yeah. And so one of the reasons why I tend to recommend more over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide as a body wash rather than chlorhexidine or hippocleanse, because we have data from acne that if you use BPO with your topical or oral antibiotics, you tend not to uh, facilitate resistance. Uh, and plus, benzoyl peroxide is a lot more affordable than chlorhexidine or hippocleanse. So I think to that concern, Jim, there are ways we can try and mitigate some of that resistance just by borrowing tools from other conditions. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I've used benzoyl peroxide a lot. There have been some foam formulations with short contact or some of the, the better cleansers, and people are thinking, oh, benzoyl peroxide in the axilla and the groin is going to be too irritating. But, you know, with short contact techniques uh, and with some of the formulations, it's really not. And I think that's uh, – and it's antimicrobial, right? You're not getting into the genetics of resistance right, with right. benzoyl peroxide. Yeah. Right. What about some other topicals? I think I've heard you talk about – is it resorcinol? Yeah. So I learned this from our colleagues over in Europe uh, who compound a mixture of resorcinol in cream at a concentration of 15%. And people can apply it once a day or twice a day at the first sign of a lesion or to a stubborn lesion. And it's been shown to help reduce how long a flare is. Now, these aren't the really deep, big abscesses, but some of the papules or smaller nodules, it can really help shorten the flare and decrease how much pain people have from flares. So I, I've seen you recently show some videos of some of the surgical techniques, and it made me think back of patients that I see that present. And I say to myself, well, you know, these are fairly small lesions. I can use some intralesional triamcinolone and try to keep it as painless as I can, applying ice and some of the other techniques we use, and giving them an oral antibiotic, a doxycycline, whatever. And, and they do better. It goes down. They're better, but they're not completely gone. And I'm thinking back saying, well, if I would have known some of these techniques that Jocelyn's showing, I may have been able to do better than I had done. Not beating up on myself, but just trying to learn a new way to approach it. You know, Can you go over some of what, where you think it's really important to step in and do some of the office surgical techniques for HS? Yeah, absolutely, Jim. So I think one of the lessons I learned, honestly, the hard way by just getting frustrated with you know myself and sort of the lack of uh, significant progress I felt like I was making for some patients is I developed a rule of thumb, um, which is I try and figure out with the patient's help, are they experiencing lesions that pop up and go down, pop up and go down in different places? So more migratory, and I describe it as sort of whack-a-mole. Um, and in that case, what you're doing, Jim, with medicines is absolutely the right thing to do. And to your point about intralesional triamcinolone, it has been shown to decrease the pain from a flare in about 24 to 48 hours. Now, I've also experienced that it's not the right treatment for everyone. We tried it, didn't work for them. That's okay. We'll move on. Um, but there's also some research to show that when we inject something with intralesional triamcinolone, it sometimes can quiet those particular lesions anywhere from one to three months. So I, I think that's a reason for optimism and to give it a try. But for some lesions, they're not migratory. They're not going up and uh, coming back in different places. They're coming up and going down in exactly the same place. And that is when I think 
procedures are the right tool. And that was the change in my approach to treating patients that I think made the most difference because it meant I didn't come into a room and say, oh, this medicine isn't working and change it up. I went into the room instead and said, okay, the medicine is working on some things, but this persistent lesion probably is never going to respond to medicine. This we do one of our little procedures on. And surgery for HS comes in all different sizes, just like our medical approach comes in all different sizes. We vary everything from topicals to pills to injections even more things. And so you can do a punch de-roofing, which is the smallest of the procedures in my mind. You can go up to a a de-roofing of a tunnel, which is a little bit longer, or you can even do excisions of tunnels. And sometimes serial excisions can completely clear even a very involved site like a stage three axilla. So that, I mean, I I really feel like it's similar to patients that we put on oral isotretinoin and a lot of lesions go away, but they do have a sinus tract or something that's not going to go away with oral isotretinoin. I, I, I think it's a similar type of, of situation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm thinking back some years ago, I remember, I believe it was Peter Lynch, right? Uh, who was a, a brilliant dermatologist. He gave a, an overview of hydratinitis suppurativa and he went through some of these systemic therapies at the time. This was years ago. And I remember him saying oral spironolactone. Uh, you can try it. It may help a little bit. Doesn't seem to do much. Oral isotretinoin. Uh, I, don't, it, it, I don't know that it does as much as we would hope, but basically your back's up against the wall and there, it really wasn't a lot else to do. Um, so you, you tried these things. Where are we now? You know, we have obviously anti-TNFs. Um, you know, you helped me with a patient that needed infliximab that made a huge difference in her life after she had been on adalimumab at help, but the infliximab made a tremendous difference. Antiandrogens we've talked about, Janus kinase inhibitors. So bring us up to date that more difficult case uh, where we are with really selecting the best therapy and how to use it. Yeah, well, in your description of that uh, conversation with Dr. Lynch makes me think that, you know, years ago, we also didn't have a ton of research and we didn't have guidelines. And so one of the things that we do have access to now are guidelines to help, you know, as disease becomes either more recalcitrant or more severe, uh, you can use it as a reference and you can move on to maybe more appropriate therapies. And so uh, the North American Clinical Practice Guidelines uh, were published in the JAD. You can also download them for free from the HS Foundation website. Um, But more specifically to your point, Jim, what do you do when you walk in the room and let's say it's uh, somebody with mild to moderate? So for that person, if they've only ever been on antibiotics, I'm probably going to say, you know, if you're a woman, let's try some spironolactone. I think spironolactone is a fantastic drug. Do I expect it to cure every person? No. But I like to start with one thing and a lot of people. And if they come in and they're uh, tolerating it well, but they haven't gotten complete uh, control, what I'll often add is metformin. And I have, I would say, probably a dozen women at this point, if not more, who have cleared remission with spironolactone and metformin. And that's for the kind of stage one to stage two. Uh, Are those those women that are likely 
to be um, insulin resistant because of weight or diabetic, whether metformin is making a difference or metformin regardless? Metformin regardless. Yep. Whether you have PCOS or not, whether you have a family history, a personal history of, you know, maybe higher uh, sugars or diabetes, nope. Uh, And again, borrowing from the acne literature, there are studies using metformin showing that it decreases acne. Uh, And so they tolerate it really well. GI upset is the most common side effect. And again, starting with medicines, reevaluating, seeing if there's any of those persistent spots that we might need procedures for. And you just kind of work your way down, setting up follow-up. And, you know, I often will leave the room and say, let's give this a try. You know, if it's not working or you're not tolerating it, that's okay. Like we'll switch it up. And I think just being really optimistic and, and, telling patients that I'm going to stick by them and I'm going to, you know, keep working until we get to the right things. I think that goes a long way, especially in this patient population. It sure does. Just finding somebody that's not like sort of backing away from it because they're frustrated. They they don't think they're going to be able to do a good job with the patient and patients pick up on that and just let them know you're going to, you're going to, stick with them. So we have so much information to keep up with in dermatology. We get all these little journal scan things and practical updates. And I remember on one of them recently, uh, and I can't remember exactly where it was published, they talked about using very high concentrations of intralesional triamcinolone, 20 to 40 milligrams per cc to inject into the lesions, you know, by intralesional injection. What's your thought on that? Well, I think I've also learned this the hard way too. Uh, I've used too much triamcinolone and given people very significant striae, uh, given them very significant atrophy. Uh, and they have been very gracious with me after that happens. And I'm very hard on myself. So I will occasionally, if it is a really big, deep, abscess. I might put 40 in it. Um, but I tend to have very decent luck and fewer adverse effects by using 10. And I'll also sometimes mix it with a little um, lidocaine um, just to try and help give them a little relief, knowing that it right. burns uh, you know, in that immediate moment, um, but it can help a little bit with pain. After I read that, I I was thinking that, you know, the article, it's hard to picture the lesions they were actually injecting, and it would be deeper lesions, not these smaller, more superficial lesions. But, so let's go one step further. Where are we now with the monoclonal antibodies and even Janus kinase inhibitors, and what's your perspective on that arena? Yeah, and... You asked earlier about, you know, how do you how do you handle some of these tougher patients? And I, I gave you kind of my thought about the mild to moderate. Um, but I, I think it's really important to have in our minds, uh, just like, you know, you talked about Jim uh, isotretinoin and when do you make that decision that somebody needs that medication? Um, we need that rule of thumb you know, for HS too. So um, when I see people who have scarring, when I see people who have tunneling, um, those are the people I think that I need to offer to them. Um, Not that I'm telling them to do these things, but I'm offering to them now therapies that maybe I wouldn't have offered to somebody with a more mild HS. Um, Those things that we're offering are these monoclonal antibodies and down the road, the JAK inhibitors. I do a lot of the clinical trials and to sum it up, I'm really excited. I mean, we are having people come in to our clinical trials office with a lot less HS. 
And I don't impress easily. You know, if a lesion is 20% better, not impressed. 50% better, maybe I'm starting to get impressed. But there are people coming in with very significant improvements on some of the novel therapies that are being developed right now. And I think it's important for our patients to know this because they often feel like nobody's researching this disease. They often feel like, there's not a drug out there that seems to be working. Um, but to be able to tell them there are so many trials and there are medicines that we are seeing as investigators that actually do work. And I think it's important for all of us as colleagues to realize you might be struggling now. And yes, this is this is the part of your career where 20 years from now, you're going to you know look at the young dermatologist and be like, I practiced dermatology when in HS we had to use, you know, infliximab off-label and it was 10 milligrams per kilogram. And even then I could barely get people under control. So we'll all have really good war stories about this, but we're going to be in a very different place really just three to five years from now because of the novel monoclonal antibodies and the uh, oral agents. I have to agree, Jocelyn. Some of the studies we're doing on HS to patients, or especially when they get in the open label extension, you know, they're getting the active treatment. They are just absolutely thrilled, the majority of them. So, uh, so I do have a final question for you. So you, you, pronounce your maiden name for me. Shiaka. Okay. Shiaka, which I understand is a city in Sicily, correct? It is. Right? Yes. So that you, we have this Italian background here and we, you know, I work with Alex Coletta and Lou Pellegrino on, on these, the, the, the three Paisanos. And I have a question for you. Okay. Mm. And I think this is the most important question of the discussion today. Right? Okay. Do you call it when you're sitting down you know, family dinner with the Italians in your family, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Or the converted Italians, even. <laughs> um, you know, so do you call it gravy or sauce? We call it sauce. I know that might not make me Italian anymore, but yeah, we. I grew up hearing about my grandfather's sauce, and then my dad would make sauce every winter, uh, and he still makes great red sauce. We don't say tomato sauce. We say red sauce. Right. Red sauce. And, and you, we called it sauce, too. Gravy was that brown stuff you put on your mashed right. potatoes and right. turkey. That, but there are some. We're surprised. You know, we're our son that, that say gravy. But I think they're the minority. I think are sauce people. Uh, I, I, think we're, I think we're still in charge. Jocelyn, thank you so much. I'm sure as we get more information on HS, you know, you know I'll, I'll be talking to you again because you certainly have been a leader uh, in this. I've seen you several times on the trainings, the the study trainings, help people on how to grade the disease. And and so we appreciate all these efforts because it does take time, but we certainly are a lot further ahead thanks to people like you. Thanks for being here today. Absolutely, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.